Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask various people to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things they love and one they loathe and would like to be rid of. My guest in this episode is the actor, comedian, writer, director and TV host, Craig Ferguson, who is probably best known as the host of the American chat show, The Late Late Show. But in fact, Craig started his career as the drummer in a punk band, fronted by his friend Peter Capaldi. He was a very successful stand-up comedian for many years, as well as an actor in such things as One Foot in the Grave and his own show on ITV, which co-starred Paul Whitehouse. In 1994, he moved to Los Angeles, where he was cast in a number of films. He also wrote and starred in three films, The Big T's, Saving Grace, of which the British TV series Doc Martin is a spin-off, and I'll Be There, as well as being a regular cast member of The Drew Carey Show. He also continued to perform stand-up, appearing at Carnegie Hall and Radio City Music Hall. In 2004, he started hosting the nightly chat show, The Late Late Show, which he did for 10 years with enormous success. His guests, let's face it, were a who's who of world fame. I spoke to Craig, with slight trepidation, at his home in Scotland, via the internet. And what a treat it was. I hope you enjoy it. So, um, how are you enjoying being back in Scotland? Uh, very, uh, very much. I came back a couple of years ago, actually, now. 2018, so almost two years. Uh, I still go to America to work a lot, and I still have family there and, and work there, but I'm very happy to be back here because I don't work that much anymore. I think I've sort of retired. 
And when I'm in the garden and stuff, I'm like, yeah, this, I prefer this. No, well, you're lucky to be in that position, I think. It's just a fancy word for unemployed. I could just—I <laughs> prefer to be unemployed. It's either or. Well, I, you know, I woke up this morning a bit nervous because I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I'm interviewing someone who's interviewed everybody. Well, that's a nice thing to say, but I, I, I think you should, first of all, please don't be nervous because I don't think I really interviewed anybody. I'm, I'm not good at interviewing. I'm not a journalist. I can't get information out of anyone who doesn't want to give it. No. You know, I'm not good at saying, wait a minute, you said that, or coaxing people to be, uh, you know, more kind of <clears throat> indiscreet than perhaps they would be if they, if they were, or, or be less guarded. I don't think of myself as, as an interviewer, really. I don't think I possess that journalistic skill. I think that's why they call them chat shows, isn't it? Yeah, just, just having a chat. Yeah. Uh, when I first started the late night show, we, we used to do a bit on it called a cup of tea and a chat mm. where um, someone would come from the audience and we'd have a cup of tea and a chat. <laughs> <laughs> were they some of the best bits? The best things that we did were probably towards in, in the late night show were, were later on in the run when we didn't rehearse anything. I mean, I stopped rehearsing after about two years, yeah, which was about 400 shows in. We used to do... 220 shows a year. So after a couple of hundred, you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll be, we, we used to record the show at five o'clock. I'd get there about five. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the more they were like that, I think the better they got because they weren't overproduced. I think the danger, particularly when you're starting out, you know this, it's the same with drama. It's the same with, with any kind of television or movies as well. People are nervous at the beginning. Executives are nervous. So everybody wants to say, let's, uh, you know, what's the set look like? They always think the set is really important. And, <laughs> you know, we should have a bit where, you know, there's a thing that announces a thing. And I don't think people really care about any of that. I think that it's about comfort, particularly with a, with a late night show or with a talk show or a, or a chat show or, or whatever. It's, you know, it's just, is it easy? Is it, does it not ask much of me? Can I be a sort of fly in the wall in this conversation? That's the kind that, that I do anyway. I mean, other people do differently and do it very well, but that's what I do. It's a little different if it's a game show or something, but for a talk show, I think you just have to turn on the camera and you'll be fine. <laughs> well, that's what we've done. Yeah, but I think that's right. I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, the main reason that I, I wanted to talk to you is because I just want to talk to you. And I think that's, that's the secret. So if you listen to what the other people are saying, whether it's rehearsed or not rehearsed, if you actually listen to it, I think people think you're clever. <laughs> <laughs> so often you see people in their eyes go dead because they're thinking of the next question, I think. Mm -hmm. and, you, and then mm -hmm. you're aware that they're not listening to them. And so you think, well, why should I bother? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're not. And I have to say that... Uh, You've frozen on the screen. Oh, no, there you are. Or maybe your eyes went dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at my next question. <laughs> I never did that. I mean, it became kind of a thing for me when I was doing the talk show. To, like, and a trademark was to tear up the questions before the conversation began. But I never really did that because it implies, you know, if you, if you have a set of prepared questions, that's correct, I think, if you are a journalist. If you're talking to you know, a politician or a business person or, or an actor or something like that, and you want to get a specific 
piece of information or a specific uh, amount or, or or range of information. I don't care about any of that. You know, I don't, I don't really care about getting specific information. I never did. Uh, I'm quite happy to get to know someone. In fact, I enjoy that. But but to find out, to have an agenda, if you like, it is correct in some, in in many circumstances for an interview, I think it's right. But I think for me, it never was that. I think now, uh, when I, I don't do a lot of interviews now, I mean, I've got nothing to promote anyway, but, but I don't do a lot of interviews even when I do because I felt like you almost had to have a lawyer in the room with you, you know, that, that everybody was trying to catch you saying something indiscreet or clumsy or, or hateful or, you know, uh, so that they could, you know, make some kind of clickbait for it so that it would drive their site. And so the agenda became not about who you were talking to, but actually about the show, the, the person themselves. And that, I, I find myself a little uncomfortable in that because I, I feel like I'm waiting to get tripped up in some way. Yeah. And, you know, I have said this many times before, I can't be held accountable for things I say. <laughs> but you've always had that skill, Craig, if I can take you a long way back. I remember in detail, actually, the very first conversation we had. We went out to dinner together and you talked to me about why I'd fallen in love with my wife. In, in extraordinary detail for about an hour. Well, I was, I, I, I have always been fascinated with you and Mandy because you found each other so early and so uh, decisively, which I, I think is, I think I was very envious of it then. I'm not so, I'm not so bad about it now. I mean, I've been with Megan for 15 years now and that's kind of like, it's all kind of settled in, but, but I was jealous of it then because I didn't have that. I didn't, I didn't find that for a long time. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't in any way manufactured. The the interest of the That's, that was very clear at the time. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone into such detail. I think. Well, I think most people are interesting. I, I even uh, and I, I hesitate to say this to an actor of such long standing as yourself, <laughs> but even actors are interesting. Um, are you sure about that? Yes, I am actually. The the um, what's interesting about the actors is that once you get them off talking about acting, and when they talk about acting, it's like musicians talking about music. Like, uh, yeah, just do the music. Don't talk about it. Yeah. Uh, for me, anyway. I mean, a lot of people are fascinated by the, why did you choose an F7 there? That's such an odd choice of chord. Like, I, I wouldn't know what I was talking about. And I feel like with actors or, you know, um, you know mole trappers, <laughs> if people are too, are too concentrated on the actual mechanics of their particular sausage factory, then I, I get, I drift a little, mm. but, but people who, uh, have ended up in professions, whether it's acting or aviation mechanics, there's always a story. There's a, it's, it's quite interesting. And I think once you get to the story, that that's what fascinates me. Yeah. Or certainly that's what interests me usually. Mm. I mean, sometimes there's just nothing to say. Sometimes people are so guarded that all you can do is just talk nonsense or throw provocative pieces of, of fun at them in the hope that they'll react. And that happened a lot when I was doing late night too. You were just like, all right, there's nothing going on here. Just say something funny and hope that they'll say something funny back. Yeah. It struck me, uh, you know, when we were talking about a long time ago when you and I had a conversation, I remember 
I very much as a young man wanted to project the idea of how great everything was, you know, how, how well I was doing, how, you know, I was doing this and I was playing here and I made this much money and I'm going to be doing this television show or this movie or something. And it, it was like a walking promotional machine. And I, I'm rather embarrassed by that now. I think, uh, you know, but I, I, I see it as, as the product of being young and, and insecure. But I think that probably puts people off. It, it puts me off. When people are telling me how great they are, I, I think, oh, okay, I, you know. But when people tell me about their failings or their fears or their insecurities or their or funny things mm. even, I've always found that, I had a lovely conversation, maybe I was about two years into doing Late Night with Stephen Fry, who I know you know Stephen very mm. well. And, and we were talking about the old days when we all knew each other. And I, and I said, I was always very jealous of you, Stephen. You always, you know, you, you seemed you had everything. You know, you were, you know, Oxford and Cambridge for some reason. <laughs> you know, he, he had a, an old-fashioned, uh, he had an old noble name, and also it was a bit like chocolate. He was tall, he was very clever, and he was uh, clearly, uh, you know, coming to terms with, well, at the time, I don't know if you remember, Stephen was celibate. Remember he, he yeah. was celibate? That was his, that was his, his kind of trademark, yes. if you like. And he drove a London taxi. Yes. And he was just fabulously interesting person. I said, I, fe- I said, I was very jealous of you and he said well that's very interesting because I was jealous of you because you were drunk a lot and had a leather jacket on (laughs) (laughs) and it's true I was drunk a lot and I did wear a leather jacket and I was working class and I was you know I was the grass is always greener and and I I think that that's interesting to me it's a bar to communication Mm. I think that no one gets to know you if you're telling people how great you are it's okay Caesar (laughs) <laughs> Fine, we'll put up a statue. You know, I mean, it's a, usually the people that I'm talking to, you know, if I was doing, you know, when I was doing late, you're talking to people because they're accomplished, because they've done something, you know, so that's fine. I remember when I was directing a film for the first time, I was talking to a very, very famous film director. I'll tell you, it was Warren Beatty, actually. Warren Beatty and I had lunch together and, and I was asking him about directing a film and he said, well, the, the first thing you should do is, is just try and say as little as possible to the crew. <laughs> Don't try and impress them because they've all got the call sheet. They've all seen on the call sheet that you're the director, so they're already impressed. The less you say, the more impressed they're going <laughs> to be. And I thought, oh, that's great advice. Yeah, yeah. Never miss an opportunity to not say it. Yeah. It's just me being quiet. Yeah, no, I like it. I'm thinking that I have to try and record a podcast with you. So it's a very simple idea that we basically talk about five things that you would like to take from your life and put into a time capsule. May I ask a few questions about the capsule you can. Uh, and, its, and its eventual purpose? Is it to be found by archaeologists uh, a couple of thousand years from now? Is that what we're thinking? Well, they will be preserved in there, but I have to say that uh, most people are so fond of the things that they put into this time capsule that they're loath to bury it. Well, is it, is it moments or is it actual physical things? And how big is the time capsule? Ah, well, uh, in that case, the time capsule is any size it needs to be. Ah, good. 
Well, you know, I have two sons and I was present at both of their births. It's the only live human births I've ever attended. And uh, they are uh, shockingly magical and strange. And I'm kind of amazed by it. I've never, it's never really left me. The, I mean, you, your children become these people and they're gorgeous and all the moments of their childhood and they get older and stuff and, uh, and you love them. But them coming into the world and, and happening, like, uh, you know, I once, I think, you know, I, I may have been under the influence of hallucinogens, but <laughs> I once saw a crow come through a wormhole in front of me as I was driving a car, I think. <laughs> and I think that live birth is, is like that. Um, it's like suddenly, there's somebody. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, and anyone who thinks that, you know, there used to be this, this belief that children were like a, a blank slate and whatever you put in, that's who they would become. And I think any of us who are parents know that that's not true at all. They, they come out and they are pretty much who they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, details change, obviously. You know, but my, my first son, who's a, a very kind of artistic and uh, he's an art student, was very kind of quiet and sort of sleepy arrival and sort of beautiful and... And my younger son, who is a much more uh, uh, pugilistic and, uh, uh, and kind of active uh, young, was born with his fists like that. Uh, like he came out with his fists like that. Clenched, yeah. The, the, so the birth of my children, I think, would be one. Yeah. The strange thing about children, I always think, is that I read once that children's brains sort of close off the synapses. To begin with, they're all connected, so it's possible for them to take in almost anything, but only in about the first two or three years of its life. I think that happens more and more as you get older. I resist the temptation to you know, shut off new ideas. Um, as I get older, you know, because we have both worked in such disreputable professions our entire lives, <laughs> I try and remain open to that that kind of uh, rascally nature. And what I mean by that is, you know, when comedians get to my age, they tend to talk about how young people are, you know, not any good or they're, you know, <laughs> people complain about millennials and they're so, uh, they're milk toast or, you know, what do they call them? Uh, snowflakes or whatever it is. It's a great line in uh, the old David Bowie song, Changes, where it says, these children that you spit on as they try and change their world they're immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. And I think that's such a beautiful sentiment, particularly as, as you age um, and, and trying to keep that baby idea of being open yeah. to it, everything coming in, you know, to, to resist uh, rage against the, the darkness, as it were, right? you know, the, the shutting off of ideas and, and, uh, and the fact that things change and the world belongs to new generations, I think that's, that's healthy to do that. And also the, the sense of fun that children have. They will go for yeah. fun. They'll go for fun instantly. The way to bring a child out of a tantrum is to do something silly. Yes, do something that, that, is, that gets a laugh. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that I, I made some mistakes in my life, though, going for fun over <laughs> <laughs> the sense of choice, <laughs> particularly... 
particularly a few years ago, I think I, I maybe overemphasized the fun. <laughs> of course, it's not always fun for everyone else if you live like that, and uh, and, and ultimately, it's not much fun for you. So, uh, the birth of my children uh, would be one. Fantastic. Okay, we're going to leave Craig for a moment for some all-important adverts. Well, they're important to me. We'll be back in a moment. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's get back to Craig Ferguson and the other things he wants to put in his time capsule. And in the, uh, in the vein of the conversation that we had 30 years or so ago in Edinburgh, I would also put in the moment I met the woman who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, at our first meeting, I was like, oh, Finally, uh, there you are, uh, and I was very aware, of it. Uh, very like in the first uh, three minutes. I met her at a charity benefit in New York City in two thousand and five, and we were introduced by a mutual friend. And I was talking to her, I thought, "Oh my gosh, she's gorgeous, and this is lovely." And uh, and I said, "You know, we were getting on very well." And I said, "Let's get out of here. Let's go for a, a drink or something elsewhere." Is because the party was very busy, and she said, "I I can't do that." I'm, I'm here with my boyfriend. And I went, oh. Uh, I said, your boyfriend's here? And I said, she said, yeah. She said, where is he? Uh, she said, he's the other side of the room uh, talking to someone. And we had been talking for about 15 minutes. And I said, oh. And she kind of saw the slight kind of disapproval in my face. And she said to me, what is it? And I said, well, I said, if, if you were my girlfriend, you wouldn't be on the other side of the room talking to a man like me. And uh, I think I said to her, that's when, you know, I, I had you. And she said, no, 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 it was way before that. But and we had to, I mean, it was six months before we got together after that. But, but it was, because obviously she had to honorably break up with the boyfriend. Yes. Um, so it was, a, it was a bit torturous, but it got there in the end. But, but that, that moment, particularly, because it has, uh, through the lens of being where I sit now, you realize it was a moment that was important. Mm-hmm. Uh, had we never got together from that, perhaps I wouldn't remember it at all. 
you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, perspective is very strange. Time alters all things. Yes, indeed. You were clearly looking for that in a way. Yes, yes. I, I wasn't aware of being that specific, but I think that that sense of completion that comes with, or, or not completion, that, that sounds final, that sense of wholeness that comes from a, a functioning uh, relationship is, uh, I think I think many people uh, aspire to that and make mistakes in the desire to have it. It's a lovely way to describe it, though, to say, you know, uh, there you are, finally. We describe it now as that she was dressed very elegantly in this beautiful, you know, evening gown. And I, you know, I was just like, oh, my God, ah, I can't last another minute. Um, <laughs> and and that's kind of how it, how it feels. Mm. Um, so so I, would, I would take that. There's also, all of mine, I think, are moments in time. I don't think there's any, like, thing. Yeah. Uh, in 1992, uh, I went into rehab and got sober, February 1992. And when I came out of uh, the treatment center and I started, you know, this kind of new way of life, uh, I was up in Glasgow for about almost a year. Uh, And it was lovely. And it was nerve wracking because changing your life like that is very nerve wracking. And then I moved to London from 1993 till 95 when I left and went to America. Mm. And that two years uh, I was in London. I lived in a tiny apartment in St. John's Wood. It was an attic apartment just off St. John's Wood High Street. And I would, every morning, I would, or a few mornings a week, I would hear the household cavalry exercising the horses down the street. And you would hear the, the sound of the hooves, just all these beautiful animals going up the side of the, the road there towards the park, I guess. And um, I loved that. I loved... I felt like I had a shot. I was finally free from the clutches of, of the alcohol and the drugs that were destroying me, and I, and I felt free. I didn't feel like it was I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth anymore. It was actually something I was doing that I was loving. And, yeah. and it, was a real, it was a real change. It was a beautiful time, a really beautiful time. Yeah. That two-year period. And then I went to America. Of course, that was a whole different adventure, but... That sense of being free from something and actually not feeling as if you've given it up, as actually as if you've escaped from it, must be fantastic. Yes. Much more about escape than, than denial. It's funny that, you know, people still say to me, I mean, I've been sober 28 years, mm. and people still say from time to time, you know, do you miss it? And I'm like, I, no. It's like, do you miss jail? No, <laughs> I don't miss jail. I, I, I don't even remember it that fondly, to be honest. Uh, you know, I. What I miss sometimes is the sense of ease and comfort, which was instantly available at certain points during a day. And I think that's why addiction is is so attractive. Mm. Uh, nicotine or alcohol or, you know, it takes, we used to say it, you know, takes the edge off, you know, and it calms you down. But there are other methods of doing that that are slightly less flamboyant, dramatic, and arrestable. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I, I, I use them now. It's funny, isn't it, as well, because you were never really a man who needed to have the edge taken off. It's interesting. I didn't see it that way. No, obviously. I mean, we knew each other. I mean, you certainly knew me when I was drinking. And, you know, I was uh, very lost internally. I, I, you know, I was very 
insecure about everything. And and so a lot of it was a front. I, I had a lot of skills to appear more uh, sanguine than perhaps I, I was. Yeah. Um, I was better at some time than at others, really. Mm. You know, it, it didn't follow any kind of, it wasn't, I mean, it was a bucking bronco. So there wasn't a kind of, you know, it didn't seem like it was a steady progression. It was sometimes it was disastrous and then sometimes it was okay. And that's one of the very confusing things about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people say, you know, you often get asked, what was your rock bottom? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I, a lot of them were very bad. Um, and then people often, this is one that I like, is when people say, how much did you drink? I was like, I don't know. I don't keep a diary. It's not Weight Watchers. I drank until I was either, there was none left or I was arrested. I don't, I don't know how much I drank. I, as much as I could, I suppose. You yeah. know, a thousand bottles a day. Does it matter? You know. No, because some people, you know, a glass of whiskey will do it. Yeah. Um, for me, that I'm one of these. Like one drink and, and I'm done. I don't know where it's going. Um, uh, so that's why abstinence is the only way that works for me. Yeah. You know? and, and I don't have it as a, listen, my wife is in no way uh, abstinent <laughs> from drinking alcohol. And uh, I don't want to give you the impression she's a, look, she takes wine. That's what I'm saying. She drinks wine. And I um, I don't have it as a manifesto for other people. I, I get kind of uncomfortable when people get evangelical about sobriety. I feel like for me it is the only rational choice and I'm very glad I, I took that. You know, I was able to uh, to get that. Mm. And you know, if you want to drink and you and you're happy to do it, do it. Yeah. I'm not not your parent. No. When you were in St. John's Wood, did things change for you then? Did you become much more of a writer and or is it just performing at that time? Well, I, I always wanted to do that, but I didn't work hard enough uh, when I was drinking. And also, in order to make films or, or put stuff on or make tele programs and stuff, you know, this, people have to trust you with their money, you know. So <laughs> if you say, uh, you turn up and you go, ah, I'm sorry I'm late, I was a bit drunk. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, let's give him $20 million to make a picture. It, it, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it does happen, it, but it, it, it didn't happen to me. No. I didn't function properly intellectually. I didn't, this is just me. Uh, I didn't function emotionally. I didn't, I couldn't, I, I had all the desire to function. I had all the desire to be a, a, a human being, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. And, and I suppose the tragedy of, of that is that I, I, I was full of good intentions, but I couldn't get the train out of the station because I was drunk. Mm. And or not, or not even just being drunk. I just there's no belief. There was no uh, there was no confidence. There was no uh, and there was no solidity, for want of a better word, of 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 thought. Mm. Um, and so I I was scattered. And when I got sober. I felt like I had a lot to say. Now, what's interesting is now, I suppose, or, or what interests me now is that I have nothing to say now. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to say. I, have, I feel I have nothing to add right now. I mean, maybe something will come up, but I don't have anything to add. I'm just like 
okay, well, I'll do whatever needs to be done. Yeah. And so I'm out in the garden, you know, weeding and, you know, mowing and, and chopping and planting because I, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. It's a lovely thought that actually people who sort of um, look at somebody's life and think, God, I wish I'd love to be there. I'd love to be that really successful person in America doing all these things, everything. And actually the moment that you really cherish is in a little top floor flat in St. John's when you suddenly, you know, you feel free. Yes. One of the greatest gifts I got doing the late night show for so long was that it completely demystified success, particularly Hollywood success. It demystified it completely. Mm. It contains, uh, I, I met everybody. I talked to everybody twice, more than that. I became friends with some people who were my idols when I was a kid, yeah. you know, and, and lost some of them, you know, Carrie Fisher, Robin Williams, two of my friends, Robin Williams and Carrie Fisher, both my friends uh, that I met doing that show, both gone, both, you know, different uh, episodes of Torment, you know, and I, I love them. Mm. And there are people I met who I would have thought I would have wanted their lives. And I thought, oh, God, you, you just, I wouldn't want to be you. And other people who are, it, it just success the douchebag to mensch ratio amongst successful people is exactly the same as it is in the pub. I remember Alan Alda said once, because uh, I was talking to him about the nature of things. He's a very, very bright man. Mm. He wrote a great book, by the way. His autobiography, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and <laughs> Other Things I Have Learned, is <laughs> it's fantastic. It's one of the most literate autobiographies I've ever read. An amazing story. His father was a movie star. His mother was schizophrenic. And it's a, a, a wild story. We talked uh, about success and the nature of it. And uh, rich and famous was the, the, the thing we were talking about. And he said, rich is great, but famous is awful. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, I'd, I'd go along with it. I'm not particularly rich or famous, but, but I've had enough of both to know that fame it's not what you think it is. You know, if you've no. got an Instagram account, you know what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. It's just having an Instagram account. You know, that's all it is. I'm very grateful to, to having witnessed that, mm. you know, firsthand. You know, the, to have it be demystified is, is a real, it's a real gift, I think. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you that lovely period in the flat in St. John's Wood that you can go and you, know, you can visit it anytime you like. That's not bad at all. That's man. not bad. Feels no. okay. So there's three things. Yeah. Three things you put in. You put in uh, uh, the birth of your children, meeting your wife, and your time in the flat in St John's. The new, newly sober life. Yeah. I think um, also this is quite. A, this is another chunk of time, but it's it's a much bigger one. Is America. Uh, California in particular, New York and California. But I mean, I've been everywhere in America. But America, uh, you know, I became an American citizen. And I, um, uh, show business in America was very kind to me. I felt like when I went there, the ghosts of my drinking and sort of past life were unimportant. Nobody cared. It wasn't that I reinvented myself because I didn't really, but I could approach every professional situation with a clean slate. No one had seen me 
drunk in a club in Edinburgh at two o'clock in the morning doing a, a shitty stand-up set, you know, mm. or trying to get through a, a show when I wasn't capable of doing it. No one had seen any of that. Um, so it was, there was no, none of that difficulty. And then when I, there were moments in America, and they're too, too numerous to mention, like meeting presidents and, mm. uh, you know, being shown around the Senate and, or, or yeah, planes and, and uh, just the, the madness of it all, the Malibu and, and the, the Hollywood Hills and all that stuff. Yeah. It's all crazy. <laughs> uh, but I loved it, and I left because I wanted to leave. I didn't get kicked out. No one... No one said it's time for you to go. I was like, I'm done. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I'm still an American. I still pay my taxes there. I still love, love the place. I, I fear for it right now, obviously. But, mm. um, but America was uh, very, very kind to me, and I'm very grateful. And did you fall in love with America sort of before you went or, or when you went? Yes, I fell in love with America in 1969 mm. when I watched the moon landing when I was a little boy. Ah, and yeah. that was, I remember, because we were allowed to stay up and watch it, and and I was like, whatever they are doing, I would like to be one of them. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and obviously it's a little more complex a story than than it first appears when you're a seven-year-old boy watching the first moon landing, it's, it's much more complicated. Dr. Cornell West and I were talking once about our different experiences of America. It was a black history month and we were talking about it. And he said to me something that caught my attention then. And it stayed with me ever since he said, Craig, black people have never had the luxury of believing in American innocence, American innocence. Wow. Yeah, and and I that resonated with me, and it still does. Yeah, I I love America, but I, I'm not seven years old, and it's not the moon landing. Which strangely, for for a number of Americans, they are still seven year olds, and uh, it is still the moon landing. But for some people in Britain, it's still you know the Second World War. I think for a lot of people, you don't actually face up to the realities of your country. Yeah, I, I think you can love a person and, and see the faults, and you can love a and you can love a place and see. It, and I think you can love an idea and see that there are flaws within it. I think it's part of that thing we talked about earlier about that. You know, babies are open to stuff. You must be open to the idea that more information is more information. Mm. It's not. I don't want to hear it. You know, it's like well, maybe maybe we should hear it. Mm. You know, Scotland is doing a very, uh, I think, painful but necessary, taking a very necessary look at Scotland's part in the slave trade in the uh, 18th century. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that it's, you know, difficult to look at all that stuff, but I think it's probably necessary. Yeah, no, I agree. People always attribute the success of Great Britain, as it were, to the Industrial Revolution. But to a large extent, the Industrial Revolution is a product of the enormous amount of compensation that was paid to people when they were told they couldn't have slaves anymore. That's uh, what's it, quantitative easing of the greatest form you've ever seen. Yeah, and, uh, and I think that the story is usually a little more complicated. It, like on a personal level, like we were talking about it, like it, it, it looks like it's okay, but actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems and, and it can happen with countries or people, you know. Mm-hmm. Just because people tell you you're one thing doesn't mean you are that thing. 
You know, yeah. it's just like if I say I'm great, that probably isn't necessarily the truth. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm not implying any particular president in particular, but, uh, <laughs> but if, if someone keeps telling you how great they are, perhaps you should find a different source, mm. you know. Ah, well. All right, well, we've got one last thing to put into the time capsule, Craig. Uh, really, this ought to be a thing you're quite keen to put in there. You're keen to put in there not because you want to visit it or, or own it, but you just want to get rid of it. <laughs> I've got way, way too many. Um, I think, you know, in the sense of wanting to get rid of something and wanting to bury it, you know, I, I don't, in, in terms of experience, I don't have that. Mm. I feel like I have philosophically reached a point where I accept everything that happened was what happened. And I, to remove the, uh, again, to quote uh, Cornell West, when people wanted to take the N word out of uh, Huckleberry Finn, and he said, you can't remove the funk of history. And you can't, whether it's personally or for your country. And, uh, it's better to have the funk as well. So all of the funk that, that I've got, that's my funk. So you're saying without it, you wouldn't be you or it wouldn't, you wouldn't be where you are. Well, obviously that's true. But I think in addition to that, I think also um, I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. You know, like, so the stuff that I've done, which is embarrassing or, or shameful, I don't have to do that anymore. So that, then I guess I, that was, that was a, what it was for. Mm. Um, there is one thing that I'd quite like to put in that I, so that I could have it forever. Mm -hmm. And that would be my Land Rover Defender. Um, <laughs> I am very fond of that. That is the greatest car in the world. And I have one question about, uh, no one seems to be able to answer this to me, but, uh, you know, because Brexit happened and uh, look, it is what it is. The Defender was removed because it didn't meet European safety standards. They stopped making it. So can we have it again? Do we, do we get... Bring it back? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it. That if you're looking for benefits from Brexit, that's got to be one of the big ones. Yeah. I mean, I know they're making new Defenders, but I don't want a new Defender. I want more old Defenders fresh. <laughs> I want fresh old Defenders. Um, which I think will be my fine young cannibals tribute band. That'll be the name, Fresh Old Defenders. <laughs> you, you and your band names. That takes me back. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. How is Peter Capaldi? You two young punk rockers. It's hard to yeah, imagine. No, we were. Yeah, we were gorgeous back then. We're two old crinklers now. We were <laughs> lovely back then. Yeah, no, it's fantastic, isn't it, when he, he was picked as a doctor? It was great, yeah. I mean, he because... Pete had always kind of been so. He, I mean, look, he's he's a really great actor, Peter. But I mean, and he played many different parts, and he'll play many more. But to get that little, you know, that ten-year-old kid, yeah, thing, that's great. You yeah, know, yeah, that's yeah. lovely. It doesn't happen to many people. It's lovely. So, uh, your Defender, what sort of model is it? It's a ninety long wheelbase ninety. Yeah. So it's uh, the uh, you know it's kind of like the. Support vehicle for uh, crossing um, large, inhospitable pieces of terrain. And I drive <laughs> it across Scotland. <laughs> I always feel a bit more like who I wanted to be as a kid when I'm driving the Defender. Window open, elbow in the window, right, 
change the gears, you know, and it's a defender. I think, yeah, all right. Everything worked out there. Well, I'm glad it did. Okay, all right. I'm going to put all those things in the time capsule for you, Greg. Yes. I'll post it to you. Unfortunately, I can't give it to you personally because it's too fucking big. It's got America in it. Jesus Christ. America, yeah. And also, there are so many other things. I mean, we boiled it down at five, but of course, you know, I think that, I don't know if you do this as you get older. I, I can entertain myself sometimes and I'm trying to get to sleep or if I'm just like in my own company. I can use uh, memories and things like that to uh, entertain myself in an odd way. It's, it's almost like a personal Netflix. Yeah, a great big bank of them. When you're younger, you're looking to do them. And as you get older, you say, well, I've done a lot. So I've got quite a lot to remember. I can't remember a lot of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't possibly remember all of it. Oh, Craig, it's been lovely talking to you, I have to say. And you, Mike. I've always adored you, and I'm very happy to see you look so well. And I'm, I hesitate to say distinguished, but uh, oh. actually, we kept our hair. We kept our hair. Just hanging on to it. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll see you soon. Enjoy the garden. All right. Thanks, mate. You too. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my delightful guest, Craig Ferguson. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have the time, please do rate us and leave a review. Thanks. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you very much for listening. So, until next time... Oh yeah, bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.